Today on Chase Wildly. This man has a theory about beliefs, that they craft our personal experience and our collective trajectory. He's working on an exciting project called The New Human Story, which is focused on just this, shifting our core beliefs in order to cultivate a better humanity. He is a photographer and an artist. He is also the man responsible for the Inspiration Campaign, which used crowdfunding to put positive messages on billboards throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. This is Robert Bankston. Let's go. intention is to play whatever role I can play in this leading edge transformation I feel that we're in. Like following the cosmic breadcrumb trail Mm -hmm. to be on this exploration that we're in. And so as a as a self-admitted portal of the inquiry it's like these conversations, these contemplations give us that opportunity to have something comes through these connecting some dots, having some clarity, some aha moment. Mm-hmm. And this idea of being of service, like this whole idea of planning this, sitting down, having this conversation is of service to something. It's, it's, it's where our service of transforming mm-hmm. the this is for me, the belief system of humanity and of individuals. And so this idea of being a service creatively is, uh, is being fulfilled. That intention for that is found in this opportunity to have a conversation, to explore this and to have that ripple out into the minds and experiences of other people. So this idea of playing whatever role we're destined to play and however this finds its way out into the world, into people's lives, um, that is my overarching intention, really, in my life as a creative person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love how it finds its expression in something like this. So it's really great to sit here with you. Amazing. It's yeah. an honor to have you on. I don't want to touch immediately on what you said about roles. Um, you know, the idea that, that it almost sounds like you're curious about what role you are playing in this transformation. Um, now I know for me in my life, I've had a lot of ideas about the role I was supposed to play and, and learned along the way that, Oh, maybe it's not that role, or maybe that was just my ego wanting to attach to that role. And, and I've, I too have sort of become a bit curious about, okay, what if I just set the intention of, of being of service to humanity's transformation towards, towards a better version or a more clear version or more loving version, instead of really trying to attach 
to a specific role. That being said, what is your, if you look back at your life, what are some of the roles that you've played intentionally or unintentionally that have led you to today? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm, I'm struck to answer that from the perspective of these, this fundamental question that I know we've talked about that I think is really powerful to share as the, the key driving foundation of, of one's life, which is who do we think we are Mm -hmm. and how, who we think we are is often and is defined by who we're told we are. And that's the beauty of humanity in shaping the characters that exist in this world, that humanity shapes us, that our culture shapes us. And so who I feel that I've been, who I thought I've been, has been changing so much over my life as I've been diving more and more into that question. Yeah. And now... I'm not sure how to answer that. Where'd you start? I mean, where'd you grow up, for example? I grew up on the East Coast mm-hmm. in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Okay, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Now, did you have any sense, or in in retrospect, do you have a sense of who you thought you had to be or who, who you thought you were supposed to be growing up? Yeah, although I don't think it was ever... It was never presented that way to me. It's like the fish swimming in the water. There's just a de facto-ness to having a certain kind of life. And Mm. amazed, uh, in hindsight, I'm amazed at how little that question is. I mean, the question itself is presented in such a derogatory, put-down way. Mm. Who do you think you are? Yeah. Right, like... The premise of the question negates being something extraordinary or special or amazing. Sure. So it's like even the, the, the sarcasm of the question precludes a serious inquiry into the question. That's true. And so I, it seems like there's just a, 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 a dominant autopilot mm. that we're on, which is about having some kind of accoutrements of success around money or relationships or things um, these, these conditions that yeah. make us happy. It seems like there's more of a, of a quest to be a successful accumulator of conditions rather than some sort of expression of who we believe we are and who we came here to be. Mm-hmm. And to me, that, that thread takes me to these core beliefs about who we think we are. So, and in my inquiry, there seems like there's this fundamental fork in the road of the belief of being a soul with an intention that came to be in a body as a human, as a character, as Robert, versus just an organism. Yeah. That has a brain, 
that is hardwired to maximize my self-interest and procreate. And I have a genetic system that's fixed. And, Mm -hmm. and there's a, which I would put in the category of very Freudian and, and even Darwinian in its mechanistic idea of uh, a meaningless big bang, the evolution from a single celled organism into a complex being that has all of these things. And there's no, there's no soul with an intention coming in to a stardust configuration. Yeah. That wasn't part of the, <laughs> you know, setup. Right. I went through 16 years of school. No one ever in that whole time even alluded to me being a soul with an intention who came here with some kind of purpose. Mm-hmm. And so it's really against that backdrop that I'm finding myself now at the crux of identifying these beliefs. Yeah. Like my experience has separated me a bit from the water that I've been swimming in, that humanity is swimming in. Yeah. And these core, these core, core, core beliefs that are really found in these fundamental questions of who do we think we are and what on earth we're doing here, what yeah. we think we're doing here. Right. And so those roles, like I've been going from life in my society and sees me exclusively as a character, as a human being. And that's how society sees me. That seems how culture sees me. That's And so my role has been going from that to being a actor playing this character. Mm-hmm. Actor meaning a, a soul with an intention. And I don't know what that is because I'm a character. So I'm right. contemplating being a soul as a character as a character. And I don't have any proof of this. It's just a belief. And right. yet I read ancient texts or I, mm. I read about Buddhism. I read about uh, modern science that is supporting to me this notion that consciousness isn't brain-based, that, mm. that consciousness is, that we are, that we are our conscious energy, that yeah. energy can't be created or destroyed. Mm-hmm. So if, if, we're, if everything is energy and we're energy and consciousness isn't brain-based, um, and energy can't be created or destroyed. That that to me s- sounds a lot like spirit. Yeah. Or the conversations about spirit or God or something. It's the merging of the science and the mysticism. And somewhere in that, we're all tasked with well, who am I? Who mm-hmm. is Robert? Who is Chase? Who are the people listening to this? Because we're what? all these one of a kind originals. Everything you see in this whole existence is a one of a kind original. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a as each new thing is created, it expands the notion mm-hmm. of what existence is, which I think is part of the, the fundamental premise of the nature of an infinite universe. The the idea that creativity, what can be imagined, can be created, and that just there's no limit to that. It's as imagination is as infinite as the universe. Yeah. And yet here we are in the midst of that somehow. Right. And that feels like that's a very different role to contemplate being, to be a soul with an intention in a body as a character that was shaped by culture and our family and our parents and emotional imprinting and all the things that go into creating 
us as a human being with our language and our beliefs. And we have these roles. Mm-hmm. I'm a Robert role. Sure. You're a Chase role. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the beginning of this inquiry. Like we're in the, we're in preschool. Right. Because we, the modern culture is, is really not even sure what consciousness is. Right. So we're exploring that. Well, and I think you also really nailed it when you said that most modern culture, most people are on autopilot in terms of their roles, in terms of their motivations, in terms of, and I think we're seeing a drastic shift in that, but there's still a prominent old story of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman or what it means to be successful, depending on your subculture, you know, where you're from, what neighborhood, et cetera. But I also think there is some, there's some sense, you know, when, when we feel the angst that goes along with that old story in our own lives to say, well, someone told me that, but like you said, in your own experience, Oftentimes there isn't even a telling. It, it's it, it's almost just inherited energetically. Yeah. If I think of my own life, I mean, sure, yeah, there were some things kids would pick on you if you did this, but they wouldn't pick on you if you did that. Or you know, your dad would be proud of you if you did this, and he'd be less proud of you if you did that. So there were things like that, but but those people were on autopilot too. No one was telling them. It was just this sea of energy and influence that you were navigating through. And that somehow gave you the idea that you needed to be this kind of man. And yet, so I think you're right. This is where the inquiry begins in this question of who do you think you are and what is consciousness and and attacking identity from that. But what, is there any value of looking at the old story and what is the old story? Yeah, for sure. Because naming something gives us a relationship to it. Mm-hmm. So as I look out into the world and all the, all the quote unquote problems, and there's a lot of them, right? Like every facet of society is in a crisis. We have a humanitarian crisis. We have an ecological crisis. And... Mm-hmm a lot of the conversation of trying to figure out how we solve it. Is it technology? Is it punitive? Is it incentive-based? All of that. And on my journey as a creative person, as an author, as an artist, I've been drawn to this conversation about beliefs that are underneath it all. Where all these things that we're seeing are expressions of our beliefs which I think calling it the human story as the collection of our fundamental beliefs about who we think we are and what on earth we think we're doing. And when I look at the world that way, as an expression of beliefs, everything starts to make a lot more sense to me because I believe that every free choice, every choice we make is an expression of our beliefs. And so as we look at choices that are being made by ourselves, by our neighbor, by our government, by anything, you can stop the, okay, hold on, stop the video and let's follow the thread 
okay, class, what core beliefs do you think are at the essence of those choices that are being made? Mm-hmm. And so this conversation around these core beliefs, I think is so important. And it feels like it's the elephant in the room because yeah. I had never been presented with, okay, Robert, beliefs are choices. It drives your whole human experience. Here are your options and lay them out for us. Mm-hmm. And as we get clearer about what our, what our beliefs are, that gets expressed in our choices. And I don't think we're quite there yet in identifying what's giving birth to our choices because there's a narrative that's, well, that's just the way it is. So like you were saying, we grew up, there wasn't any inquiry because that was just the way it was. That's how Uh we've been doing it. That's how it's done. And it's one of the main myths that that are at the essence of, of our humanity is this, well, that's just the way it is kind of notion. Yeah, I think you're right. And in psychology, I believe it's called a foundational belief. Mm-hmm. And foundational beliefs are ones that exist sort of in the subconscious. Um, yet they are still beliefs, meaning they're not a reflection of, of reality or truth per se. Um, and these can extend to religion. I mean, people who grow up in a religious sect and aren't exposed to other influences can believe that the truth of reality is is that you know if you kill these people or you know whatever put on a suicide vest or uh, um what do i want to say uh strap a bomb to your chest yeah. you know and blow up um martyrs or, or bad people and become a martyr then you'll go to heaven um and, and that that exists not as a choice in belief but even below and that i think extends to to really simple things. That's an extreme example. It extends to everything. Yeah. It extends to every choice can be tracked back to these core beliefs. And so the process that you're talking about is really naming those, bringing those out from the subconscious into the conscious so that they become a matter of, of, of conscious choice. Yeah. I mean, we have, and there is a, there is a distinction in my mind between beliefs that we may have now and beliefs that we have in our subconscious. And Mm. I think this is what, this is to me what, when Carl Jung talks about shadows and we hear this more, the shadow work, doing the shadow work kind of thing. Mm. To me, what that is, is the combination of the emotional imprinting that's been passed down from adult to child for thousands of years. And everything has a, so the premise is that everything has a frequency. So we live in an energetic world where things have frequency. And so shame or self-loathing or lack of self-love is an experience that gets forged as a belief. And then that has an energy to it, a frequency that gets passed down. So for example, the experience of being a child when you're still in the womb or even precognition you are being imprinted like a tuning fork by those around you. So as I've been reflecting, when my father left Earth and died uh, three, over, a little over three years ago, that really became a process of inquisition around 
what were the frequencies that my father had and my mother had and that they got from their, their family, their parents. And the way I see it is that when we're young, we're imprinted with those frequencies and we give them names, shame, sadness, guilt, and that when we're young and we're receiving these, these, uh, these, this imprinting from our family in some form of not being loved uh-huh. unconditionally, and the whole range of that from being ignored to being a disappointment. I mean, I don't, this idea of being able to love someone else unconditionally requires loving ourselves unconditionally. And that just isn't, hasn't even been an option. We could do a whole podcast just about unconditional love. Right. And as we have that experience, when language starts coming online, when the cognition of the mind, the creation of the character, and what, what's, my, what's my operating belief system, mm-hmm. in response to the experiences that we have, that I had in, in my family, I came up with my own beliefs that explain that, of being responsible. So in my shadows have been these beliefs of something's wrong with me. I'm not worthy of love. It's my fault. Um, And that to me is what gets in the shadow. Mm -hmm. And that's what gets triggered in my life and in the life of people. So I can live a life now and have certain beliefs now about hey, I've been reading about quantum physics and reading some ancient texts and I'm not seven anymore. And so I can have beliefs now about the nature of who I think I am. And yet in my shadow are these core beliefs that mm-hmm. can get triggered. And I think that, that to me, this, this conversation about story and beliefs is so important because I think that's, for, for years there was a, when I heard this idea of doing shadow work, I thought, well, that resonates. I really like this Carl Jung guy, right? I, yeah. And when he's talking about shadow, it really resonates. And yet, what does that mean to do the shadow work? Like, yeah. I didn't really, I didn't really know what that meant. And, yeah. and I think now that it's, it's acknowledging the beliefs. Mm-hmm. It's acknowledging where they came from. And there's a process of assimilating them now into the beliefs that I have now. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a belief of being a soul in a body as Robert and the infinite divine nature of consciousness not being brain-based and, mm-hmm. and not being physical, that gives me access to understand the beliefs that my mom and dad had about themselves and my grandmother and grandfather had about themselves and how that's been passed down. And how do I stop that passing down process now through this conversation like this and this contemplation and bring those beliefs, raise the frequency of those beliefs through presence, through acceptance, through unconditional love, which is very different from letting them go, mm-hmm. which is another form of abandonment. And they stay in the shadows. They need to be welcomed in like a, like a, like a cold child knocking on the door. Yeah. And the turning towards that in our own process of, of feeling the split between being the person we are now with whatever we, whoever we think we are 
in the context of who we thought we were and the beliefs that were formed when we were, when we were younger. Mm-hmm. And that, that comes back to this role because then, yeah, I'm this guy now with beliefs, but I'm also a seven-year-old with the beliefs or 13-year-old or, and we are both that. I mean, we're both these characters. You're all of that, right? You're the multitude of, of, of voices or beings that of beliefs, of beliefs, I yeah, think. of belief systems, because, even. And I think this gets to this. It might be helpful to set the context of part of what I think we are are this trilogy of pieces. Mm. So, being a the nature of consciousness as a as what I would call a soul. Yeah. So. It's just a backdrop, maybe even a bigger, the idea of everything being frequency, some kind of unity consciousness is what I call spirit. And I would say everything is spirit. I used to use spirit and soul more interchangeably. And then Michael Mead, who's an amazing storyteller, myth maker, um, he wrote a wonderful book called Fate or um, uh, it's escaping me now, but it was about the nature of the soul. I heard him speak and, and he made the distinction between everything being spirit and then the aspect of being a soul and the, the differentiation of being different souls. Mm-hmm. So let's just, for me, that's just part of, that's one, a big piece of a being in a soul with intention that comes to be a human. Mm-hmm. And so there's that piece. And yeah. then there's the stardust configuration called a body. Okay. That is, the, the other third of this experience. Mm-hmm. So it's 50 trillion cells. It's doing thousands of chemical reactions and processes every moment, beating the heart, doing all that. To me, it's got a mind of its own. Yeah. That's a piece. And then this third piece is really what we're talking about here, which is the mind. It's the ego. It's the mind. It's the language. It's the beliefs. It's all of that, which is the ambassador for this soul with an intention. It's the it's 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 wanting to help fulfill the intention of the soul, which to me is and we could call that the destiny, which we may not fulfill, mm. but the ability to serve that. So an intention soul that's not physical needs a body and a and a character to steward that. So we could say, hey, I'm Robert. I'm here on behalf of, I'm representing my soul. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that is. I'm not quite sure what its intention is, but I'm sincere and earnest in wanting to serve that. And as we're talking about this, all of this aspect comes down to this third part because the mind, the body has a mind of its own. I want to make use of that and the soul with the intention, but this piece about our thoughts and our beliefs and what we think seems so, that's what we can control. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what, that's, everything comes through that, that point of portal, which is this aspect that's defined by who we think we are. Yeah. And it's a belief that there's no proof to it. Mm-hmm. Beliefs are choices. Yeah. And we can turn to quantum physics and we can turn to these things to really say, wow, it, it, 
consciousness isn't brain based. Yeah. And so it's a, um, to me, I guess that, that helps set the stage of this idea coming back to these roles because this is, to me, it's a, it's, it's really literally about changing the mind. Mm-hmm. When someone says, you know, change your mind, this is what we're talking about. When you change your beliefs, you, you change everything. Yeah. And that gets expressed in ultimately it's all of that backdrop when we're talking about what does it mean to be a man? Right. What does it mean to be human? And all of that informs the answer to that question. Now, I, I agree with everything you said. And at the same time, how do we get there? How do we get to, to believing or even more importantly, embodying that sort of sensation that we are a soul, you know, living through this, this stardust suit with a mind who helps us solve problems in this um, little game of, of society and life that we're playing, you know? And for me, it's been a lot of, of, informal rites of passages, you know, a lot of the moments of hardship or the moments of realization and that bring awareness, you know, the, um, how have you experienced those, those sort of breaks or those shifts in awareness, either intentionally or unintentionally in your life? They've been self-generated. Oh, that's good. Well, (laughs) well, it's good. And it's, it's a reflection on where we are. So historically, ideally, we would be planted with this operating system by our elders. Right. So the thing I love about this whole human experience is that, okay, we're the belief that we're souls with intention coming here, but the characters in order to serve that need to be created by the culture and the people, the humans that are already here. So that's the job of humanity is to help create the character that can serve that belief system. And you can't serve the belief system if you don't even know, you don't even have it as an option. So it's a really beautiful dynamic in a way between the, the human character takes and the body itself takes 20 21 years or so to develop mm-hmm. for the brain to fully develop so the hardware so to speak needs 21 years and that time is also developed by the emotional mental and the physical aspects of being a human so you have the first 7 years is very emotionally based, don't have a lot of development of language. Around six or seven, the language starts to connect different places in the brain. And now the the linguistic conceptual starts coming online in this mental Mm. stories, beliefs start to take hold. And then at 14 to 21 or so is all physical. We start defining our bodies change. We become more developed in our independence. And then at the end of that physical stage, when the brain's done, we are a free willing character with our operating system beliefs to use our free will and every choice we make has a, has a frequency to it. Sure. And so personally, so I grew up getting a certain operating system 
that had a certain definition of what emotions are, what roles are, what's the point of life, what's mm-hmm. the goal of living, you know, all of these things that 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 drive the human experience. And so this interplay between how society helps creating these um, stewards of their souls requires the belief that enable that to happen. So if the belief is that consciousness is a function of the brain, then you never get to, you're going to get that? The tea water agrees with our, (laughs) I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's such a mystery to me because this idea of the new story is a paradigm shift to me that really hasn't happened before in recorded history. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've ever so fundamentally changed the nature of who we think we are and our and our and our ancestral lineage going back hundreds and thousands of years. Yeah. And this these this this fundamental shift in in this in these ideas and these conversations that are being supported by science is really changing the landscape. Right. And that to me is the conspicuousness of what we're seeing on the on the planet as a reflection of these old story beliefs. Mm-hmm. I see as invitations inviting us to explore them mm-hmm. in these kinds of conversations and, yeah. and defining what are emotions? What is emotional imprinting? What does it mean to, what does it mean to say that consciousness isn't in your brain, isn't a function of your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, is everything conscious or has some kind of consciousness? You know, does that, that when we say, when we use that as the, as the foundation, a lot of quantum physics discoveries start to make a lot more sense. Yeah. Or at least can be explained. And it requires this real massive paradigm shift that is at the core of each individual life because we're all expressing our beliefs through our choices. Now, when I asked you about how you came to these beliefs, you said it was really self-generated. Mm. Like what, what do you mean by that? And, and, and if, if you could give someone an idea of how they could self-generate changing their own beliefs based on something you've experienced, what would that look like? I think the biggest, most powerful tool is contemplation. Mm. So how do you define that? Contemplation is focused curiosity. Mm. So earnestly asking that question, who do you think you are? Against the backdrop of beliefs. So identifying what are the options really i think having the conversation and, and maybe just articulating it that way helps focus the curiosity around that even as mm. a question that may not be one that a lot of people have even been asked before and so as i was saying before typically that or ideally that's handled by elders through ceremony, through rit- ritual. Right, yeah. So 
not that many, doesn't seem to be the case yeah, these days. Not many boys <laughs> are being... Um, Especially not with the news story. Sometimes the yeah. old story is passed down. Maybe that way. even now there's in, in these... little little league, <laughs> right? Like what <laughs> are the Boy Scouts or yeah. whatever messed up old story is being handed down? Yeah, it seems that we're being asked in this new territory to mm. redefine this, and I think there's a lot of um, maybe embers that are still being held from different cultures around the world that are still in touch with their connection to spirit mm. and, and the essence of consciousness from the aboriginals in Australia to the Inuits up North to uh, the Achuar in the Amazon. And it's almost to the pockets in Bhutan, you know, there's these, yeah. uh, these these aspects of still being connected and i think this notion of still being ritualized and so there's a question in my mind of the new human what what does the modern ceremony and ritual look like as we usher children into adulthood and in the process ushering ourselves into adulthood mm -hmm. so like i have friends that have children that are becoming teenagers and so I don't have really anything in my life to pass on as, well, the ritual that I went through, I can pass you on because I didn't have any of that. Yeah. And I think that there's an invitation to have a bit of a blank canvas now. And I think this is helped by this contemplation around beliefs, because I don't think even in the past there was a real clear contemplation around the power of beliefs and that the process each individual chooses their own beliefs. And the empowerment of an individual to do that is supported in the best way I could think of, which is to make, is to invite awareness around what our options are. Mm-hmm. And to make a case for what the highest frequency beliefs are. Yeah. And we each have a self-navigating aspect to us to, and we ultimately are going to pick our beliefs no matter what. So it doesn't really help to just be told what they are. That's part of, I think, the rebellious nature that we associate with youth and teenagers. And, and I don't think it needs to be that way. I think the invitation and the acknowledgement that we're all going to choose our beliefs and there's really not any de facto proof of any of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're each human is on some spec is on the spectrum of nothing's meaningful, inherently meaningful. It's this kind of a random doggy dog world out there to everything is meaningful. Everything is spiritually orchestrated. And so, you're going to be on the scale from zero to a hundred somewhere, even if you've never thought of it. I mean, even asking this, okay, where are you between nothing's meaningful because we live in a random, completely random universe. There's no spirit. There's nothing like that. You're just an organism. And yeah. to everything is, is coming from spirit and is meaningful and divinely orchestrated. So how do you choose your beliefs 
as you're going through your process of contemplation, is there, is there a barometer? Are you, are you choosing with the hope of creating more love in your life? Are you choosing with some intention in mind? Are you choosing based off of a visceral body feeling that, that seems more in harmony that resonates or vibrates in a certain way? I mean, what, what it, does that actually, yeah. that experience seem like? You know, personally, it goes through a, a, a common sense factor. And because I don't believe that anything's quote unquote magic, that things, I, I have a, I have a, I feel like I have a really interesting balance between being left brained and right brained. So I want things to make sense. So when I come across some kind of belief that makes sense, whether I'm, it's rooted in some discovery in quantum physics mm. that is not explained by the old story. So when I come across a belief that can explain that, it, there's a certain resonance to me. And because I wasn't gr- brought up with a lot of institutionalized religion, I don't have a lot of old filters necessarily to go through. I, I think that there's a internal navigation system that each person has and our ability to discern the frequency of things. And I think it's a skill that we can cultivate and personally, as I've come to believe everything has a frequency, I'm aspiring to understand what the frequency of something is. So I think when I've come across different beliefs, particularly in the last number of years in my reading and, and come across something that feels really resonant to me, it's almost like my internal vibration meter of interpreting it goes way up. Mm-hmm. relative to the old system that I had. And so I think the most powerful thing that we can do is, is assess what our options are and feel which one feels accurate to me. Not what my parents believe, not what society believes, but okay, what do I believe? Yeah. And, and almost like trying them on like different pairs of shoes. Like, mm-hmm. all right. And, and I found that as these new beliefs came into my awareness, some I thought, oh, I don't think that's quite right. Mm-hmm. And then I'd come across others and think, oh my gosh, that is so spot on. Yeah. Like I remember I read that one of the newest ones was the, and I shared this with you, the presence process by Michael Brown, which is about emotional imprinting frequencies that get passed down through the ages. And we uh, make our own and that gets into our system. And the whole idea of what beliefs are or what emotions are. And when I read that, it was like my whole system lit up around, oh my God, that's, that's what emotions are. That's what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I was so su- struck by how different that is compared to the way our dominant culture perceives emotions of you, of you being responsible for how I feel. And there's a whole, that whole notion around that. So I had lived my first almost five decades believing that you could be responsible for how I feel. Mm-hmm. And so I lived my life that way. That other people were responsible for how you felt. Yeah, yeah particularly that someone, you, for example, someone could hurt you by not giving you the love in the right way or... Exactly. Yeah. 
And oftentimes it seems very justified because you've done, you've wronged me. How mm. dare you? Right. Mm -hmm. And there could be a real aspect of you acting out in your own way. And, but that's separate of how I feel. So mm. if I have an emotional feeling, my belief now is that frequency is already inside of me. Mm. And life is inviting me to become aware of what's been imprinted in me through generations. Yeah. And that through contemplation, through turning towards that without projecting it on you as being responsible, um, is a totally different way of, of navigating. Because if I hold you responsible and deal with that in whatever way I can, then I'm not attending to what's already inside of me. And that was such a, these kinds of things are such a massive paradigm shift for me because I've gone through my life trying to navigate as best I can these people that are doing things that are unkind in one form of another or unloving in one form of another. And I never got the message because it wasn't even in my cognition that life was inviting me to love the parts of myself that were coming up in this exchange. Yeah. So, and yeah, yeah that's... So it came to you in the message of this book and through contemplation, you really tried this on idea on for size and really felt it, really felt it land in a unique way that you're coming to understand means that, oh, this isn't in alignment with my higher frequency, or this is in alignment with me. This belief is more in alignment with me. Yeah. And I think through, yeah, through the through the perspective of looking at beliefs, we, or I, am now assessing them mm -hmm. as a, as what I want my own operating system to be. Right. And so, and I think that's what we're in at this stage of humanity mm -hmm. is I think one of the most powerful things we can do is have a converse, a contemplation about beliefs, talk about beliefs, create our relationship with our beliefs, identify yeah. what our beliefs are in our shadows. What do I believe now? And use the choices that we're making as a gauge of what are the beliefs at the core of that, because that self-discovery will transform how, who, uh, back to our role, who, who we think we are, how we show up in the world. Yeah. And it's a constant, I think, we're each at the leading edge of this. We each have our own particular compilation of beliefs and the way that we have been shaped and created by our culture. You know, this mm -hmm. first 21 years that shaped us, you know, as we, I'd never thought about the first seven years of my life and the emotional states of my parents. I never even thought of that. No one had ever invited me to think about that. It wasn't even presented as a powerful thing, at least in my circles. Yeah. And so here I am, 47 years old, reading a book, going, and all my insides are going, oh my God, that is so powerful. And for me to be able to connect the dots was in helping my father leave his body and that process of, of zooming out and getting a, a more of a bird's eye view around 
my parents and what my life was like. And I'm simultaneously reading this book that's planning new concepts around what emotional imprinting is. And it was all really coming together to, in hindsight, really invite me to, to, to understand what my beliefs were, what their beliefs were about themselves. And, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there's like that, the big conversation around how beliefs shape humanity. And then it's the, how does it shape my life? Right. How is it reflected in my choices? My choice, the, the thought, I mean, sometimes thoughts are just seem to just be there. There's a question of like, how much control do we have of our thoughts? Mm-hmm. I do think that our thoughts are expressions of our beliefs. Mm. So as we, as we um, empower, raise the frequency of our beliefs, I think our thoughts naturally flow from that. It's the nature of this character development as a human. Yeah. And then the next stage that seems more intentional is the words that we use, the things that we say in response to whatever we're in. And then the last is action, our choice of action. And we're 24 seven creators because every thought, word and action has a, has a frequency. Sure bring something into the world that wasn't there before. And so we're all artists, we're all creators. And so what are the frequency Mm. that we're creating in response to something is like a plant growing out of the soil. Yeah. So the, the, the choices that we make are an expression of our, of our core beliefs. Yeah, it's like an improv symphony that you're writing in your <laughs> yeah, head, man. Yeah, every moment is like, all right, what's what are you gonna? What's your what's your response now? Yeah, and how is much of life bringing up, inviting our awareness of a whole lineage of imprinting? Well, I think that's huge that you said that because you also mentioned that this awareness not only came at reading reading the book, but in the experience of helping your father pass, which is life gives us these moments, gives us these clues almost that if we're paying attention, if we're staying curious with what's coming towards us from life, be it a death in the family or a a relationship breaking up or just some Mm -hmm. angst or disappointment that we experience in response to something or someone, that those are hints from the universe of, of perhaps beliefs that aren't in alignment with us or frequencies that aren't working. So in my life, it's been those hardships or hardships isn't even the right word for it. I mean, it's just life experience where there's some discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what makes me so think in this, this dialogue of rites of passage, you know, in which tribes would make people undergo hardship because there's something about that in which life brings something to your doorstep to say, okay, here, here's something for you to look at. Yeah. It's constant invitation. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea of what's the message in this experience and often in our emotions is that invitation for the experience because I'm curious about the nature of emotions. I was just at a dinner party the other night and we had a big conversation about anger. And I've just heard a lot of conversations out in the world around 
the normalcy of anger, the acceptance of anger, that anger is part of the human nature and we are to accept it and it's justified and to get in touch with our anger. Or even celebrate it. Yeah. Y you may hear these days, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that our emotions are an expression of our beliefs. So there's a great phrase that's really stuck struck with me and it's that any act that's not unconditionally loving is a cry for unconditional love. Mm, I like that. And I like it too, because it, I can feel how that's a possible perspective to look at the world. And then I can respond with my thoughts and words and actions as as some version that I think would be the most useful in providing that unconditional love, which may be just a thought, maybe no word, maybe no action, whatever I think the situation would call for. Mm. And my life has had a lot of cases where I'm in the midst of some act that's not unconditionally loving towards me or to the planet or something that triggers me. And my response is not to provide unconditional love because it's activating something within me that then gets triggered. And that usually takes the form of, of sadness or anger or something that can feel justified because, well, look what you're doing. Look what that person's doing. And to be angry at them. And, yeah, you know, when I think of the ability to act from our beliefs I'm reminded, and we had talked about this earlier, around the ideal of, a, of the warrior archetype, which mm. is, starts bringing us back, I think, into more of the definition around being a man or being a human. And the, there's a whole kind of realm we could get into around this conversation around archetypes, these energetic, almost magnetic forces from the superconscious that shapes the expressions, I, I guess, of, of humanity and within our own self. So there's a lot of different archetypal energies out there, all these different names that can be given to try to identify what these energies are. Mm -hmm. And there are four that came to my awareness through an amazing um, scholar, this guy, Robert Moore, wrote a book on called, uh, and he identified the f four archetypes of king, queen, warrior, magician, and lover. Mm -hmm. And the warrior energy touches in on how we, how we act. It's a very much of a how thing. It enters the how aspect for me. And so in that context of being in the midst of something, to me, the, the warrior archetype that we could define as the samurai or the, or the knight of some sort, a Joan of Arc, you know, or some kind of um, knights of the round table, Japanese samurai, mm -hmm. does not have anger, but has action. And that idea of what does it look like to act, but not from a place of anger, or even sadness to me requires a certain belief system 
of what we think is going on. And again, who do we think we are? And how do we respond in this improv play that we're in, in serving something larger than ourselves through our choices? And that feels so, that's where the kind of the rubber hits the road, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's in our choice. How do I respond to that? Like, here's another scene and here's someone doing this or that, or, or how am I responding? Mm-hmm. And I think as the seed got planted around contemplating where the choices come from, you know, I think that that's what comes back to the contemplation, the curiosity around that. And oftentimes I will re- replay the tape of something that happened earlier and, and explore, huh, that was my, that was what I chose. Why did I choose that? Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. And I could follow the the thread and get back to, oh, that was coming from a belief that, that maybe it was the one that I had when I was younger. Right. And if I were to reshoot the scene now, like, all right, everyone, that was great. Cut. Nice work, let's, everyone. Let's Cut. Do all right, that for again. this scene, really uh, come from your belief, come from this um, perspective of seeing that as a, as a cry for love. What's your choice now based on who you think you are and what you think is happening here? I like that as an exercise. Is that something that you've done in your life then is to sort of not just contemplate ideas, contemplate ideas as you read books, but to have an interaction, maybe you and your partner get in an argument about something. And then even as a tool with your partner, perhaps is to share this idea and then to go back and say, listen, if we can acknowledge that, that, that this acting out is a call for unconditional love on both of our parts, how would we redo that interaction and express what we really need to express? Yeah. Um, and you could even do it just alone as you go home. You know, if it was your boss who was yelling at you or so, or someone else. Yeah. And and sort of recap it that like that way. I like that as almost rewriting the the movie or doing mm-hmm. another take on it. Yeah, I have a with some friends. We have a uh, a conversation about being in the green room. Mm. So off where we're here in my place. I have some friends that when they come over, it's like coming to the green room and we'll even have a conversation along the lines of how were the scenes today? Yeah. Or what what are some recent scenes? And we'll talk about the scenes. And even from that perspective of what if we redid the scene from a, a shift of perspective or a shift of belief, how might the scene go differently? And I think that's what, it's really what we do in our lives. And I think that's one of the reasons that's one of the reasons why I value going into the past is mm. reflection, not to perpetuate the same story, but to understand to understand myself and empower myself by understanding what was at the core of my choices on yeah. both ends and whatever end of the spectrum. Like, wow, when that happened, I was so calm and present. And I really saw that as a cry for unconditional love. And my response was, was X or Y. And wow, that's so different from what it would have been a year ago where I would have been triggered and not seen it that way. And, 
And that yeah. level of contemplation and reflection, I think is so powerful because yeah. so much of how we are operating is driven by the beliefs in our subconscious. Well, yeah. And I think that the key distinction is that reflection is this process of asking about the past from a new, from a new perspective and not just replaying the old story. Yeah. Cause replaying the old story makes that groove of belief even deeper versus going back and saying, what's the other way that I can look at this? Yeah. What's, what's the truer way that I can look at this? Yeah. What really were my needs when I said that? What really were her needs when she said that? Yeah. And we can catch ourselves if we find ourselves, if you find yourself telling a story where you're a victim of some sort, that is a really good gauge. That's a good gauge of, of what? That That's you a good gauge of, a, of, a, of perpetuating a story. Yeah. And it's just at the core of that is that we can be a victim of someone else's we can be a victim. I mean, it's just that rather than, oh, I felt really angry about that. That was letting me know that I already had anger inside of me. Where did that come from? Well, my mom was angry mm -hmm. and my grandmother was angry and she was angry because she didn't have a mother and was brought up by a Danish sea captain who, you know, you could go, how far <laughs> back do you go? Right? This is true, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, my mom's mom, um, was brought up without a mother and didn't know how to mother my mom. And my mom didn't get any nurturing, um, feminine, um, really the embodiment of the feminine. Yeah. And so that didn't get passed down to my sister or I. And so, and we each take our, we each have our, our embodiment of the frequency of not being lovable. Mm. Um, and without contemplation, we'll just pass that on without question. And so I think that is, it's like we contemplate our, contemplating what stories we're telling mm -hmm. is also a real indication of what we believe. Mm -hmm. And so we can also tell the stories differently. And that's where I think the power of belief really, it, it changes the stories that we tell. Yeah. Yeah. This, this process of, of almost living in contemplation. I mean, I mean, it really seems like this is the superpower of the mind. Um, I like that. Yeah. It, if we're using it for good, you know, is not to just retell old stories but is to, to question the stories that are there. Yeah, because if we are imprinted with hundreds, thousands of years of emotional imprinting of just low frequencies, yeah, the shadow work of illuminating that and owning that and not passing that on is a really mysterious, potentially really intense experience. And there's a lot of work out there from gestalt therapy to active imagination to um, Ho'oponopono. There's a whole, mm. a lot, lots of different modalities of what does it mean 
to unconditionally love these lower frequencies into higher frequencies. And it requires being with them and feeling them. And that's something that can easily fall under this notion of spiritual bypassing and just being positive all the time. And I, I lived that way for a long time and didn't really have a notion of what it meant to go into it, into these lower frequency beliefs about myself and wanting to just keep those in the shadows and hope that they would go away and hope that just I could positively power myself into some conditional life where I was happy. Yeah. And this, uh, just this conversation about, for me, the conversation that we're having around seeing what beliefs are and the emotions that come out of them has made that process a lot easier because otherwise I'm just having to go into my own shame mm -hmm. and try to deal with it or mitigate it or something with it. And without, or with the, with the perspective I have now of, of what it is and why it is, it's a lot easier. I'm finding a lot easier for me to, to embrace it with the frequency of a divine cosmic mother, mm. infinitely patient, open that door to the child knocking, not tell it to get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. Yeah. If we do that, there'll be constant suffering. The mm -hmm. only way I believe that we find peace is when we bring all these parts of ourselves, AKA our whole ancestral line into the higher frequency of, of presence and acceptance and, know, see this 30 million foot view of what's been the trajectory of humanity in the development of beliefs and how do we illuminate the shadows and bring this thing into wholeness. Yeah. And I keep feeling the impulse of bringing this back to the conversation around masculine and feminine, because that's a very, that to me feels a very feminine quality. Yeah. Like if I'm, if that part of myself that feels like he's not worthy or enough knocks on the door, there's a very feminine side of me, that intuitive, nurturing quality that opens up that door and invites that little version to come and sit by the fire mm -hmm. and says, you can stay as long as you like. Well, I think this is a great place to go because as you were talking, I was absolutely thinking that in my own journey, I, as I begun to do my shadow work, to look at the the darker aspects of myself or the, I don't even want to call them negative at this point because I, I don't want to make them feel bad. Lower frequency. Lower frequency things. Um, I got really trapped in shame. And part of that was that I hadn't done any work to really develop in myself the nurturing or what we consider more feminine aspects. Yeah. And this, I think will bring us to this idea that we, we all have to do work both in our feminine and in our masculine to begin breaking the old beliefs, to begin healing, to begin welcoming in those shadow aspects of ourselves so that it all gets elevated. Yeah, I think through understanding and seeing the picture, it's a lot easier to welcome in that piece. Mm. I mean, that that metaphor was such a game changer for me because I have been trying to get rid of the things that were unwanted, 
for my whole life. Either just, I wish they would go away. I wish they weren't a part of my past. I want to keep them in the shadows. I don't want it knocking at the door. I don't even want it to be here because I had so the shame around my own versions of that. Just, Mm. it felt really opposite and does feel opposite a lot in some of the modern conversations that I'm finding around letting go of things. Tell me more. Yeah. About this. Well, it feels empowering to let something go. And I think it's more accurate to raise the frequency of the thing that we want to let go of. So it's like, bring that thing up. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't push it further down there. Right. Don't drop it. You can't get rid of it. Yeah. There's a, the Gene Keys by Richard Rudd Mm. is one of the most incredible overviews on the trajectory of consciousness I've come across. It's on the top, I mean, it's the top five book list by Robert, right? (laughs) And he masterfully articulates and identifies how lower frequencies can be transmuted through consciousness into higher frequencies. And it becomes so apparent how you can't let go of impatience. You can raise the frequency into acceptance and into presence. Yeah. And, um, and his method is really contemplation. Uh, he's a huge proponent of contemplation being really specific, curious thinking, yeah. not just meditation, not just knowing it's out there. But That word came into my realm through Richard Rudd's work. Mm-hmm. And, I, and seeing the display of our identification of words from going from shadow, shadow experiences, shadow words into higher frequencies that he calls gifts and then acidic state. And it was so aligned with this notion of frequency, which touches in on such a fundamental belief that I, I sense in our modern culture, which is this good and evil. Mm. And that good and evil narrative for me can only be it's best explained by low frequency and high frequency. So it's not two opposing forces. If everything is frequency, you really just have low frequency and high frequency. So, so that notion really changes this whole Darth Vader, Obi-Wan Kenobi notion or the superhero that the, the strong good guy is gonna thwart the bad guy. Yeah. Destroy the the evil doer or this whole notion of our modern terrorism um, conversation and right. the identifying who's good and who's bad and how do we justify killing off, letting go, getting rid of the bad, as opposed to understanding this notion of, of frequency. I mean, even the notion of assigning someone as bad, I think is suspect to begin with mm-hmm. because of a lot of the nature of the conflicts, but it certainly makes it easier to justify our behaviors in the world against the backdrop of identifying things that are good or bad. I mean, even in the God and Satan metaphor, it's become so wildly and, and, and accepted as that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And yet science tells us that everything is frequency. So you look at cymatics and you have frequencies that are raising and you see the yeah. patterns in the sand. And as the frequency gets higher, the, 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 the shapes get more and more complex and beautiful. Yeah. And, and that's a good example in my own experience of belief systems. 
the good versus evil versus everything is frequency. And then reading something like Richard Rudd's book that shows how low frequencies and all the names that we can assign them can be transmuted into higher frequencies. And just seeing the trilogy of words that he put together is so satisfying to me because mm-hmm. my whole internal compass is going, that's accurate. That's totally right. You know, mm-hmm. and it just intuitively feels spot on to me. And so that's shaped how I approach my own past and my mm. own life and, and, and no longer wanting to even let aspire go. to let go of anything yeah. as opposed to in the metaphor, I don't want to let go of whatever's knocking at the door. I want to turn towards it with that feminine aspect within me of, of presence and grace and not needing that thing at the door to necessarily even change as a condition of my acceptance and love. Mm-hmm. So, and ironically, it's in the desire of not needing the condition of that to change that raises the frequency of it mm-hmm. to me. And yeah. so, and that's, I think, can deliver us in some way into this conversation of the specifics. So we've been talking a lot about this the big, these big notions, right, of, of beliefs that drive everything, shape right. us. And your, this podcast is about what does it mean to be a man? Right. And so when you first presented that question to me, what first came to mind is a lot of what we're talking about here, the big, the big backdrop that sets the condition to being a man. And as we've been, as I was thinking about the beliefs that go into that, Mm -hmm. I think there is this really strong old story notion that if you're in a genetically male body, you're a man and you're not feminine. And if you are feminine, you don't want to be feminine. And that has led to all sorts of things in our world of denying that aspect. And so there's a belief that you're one or the other. And I love how the transgender phenomenon, or not phenomenon, but the, 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 how the topic of that aspect of our humanity is inviting a broader contemplation yeah. around this question. Because now it's not as clear as the old story wants it to be. And it's, and it's short-circuiting the old story. And... The belief that a human has a balanced feminine and masculine energy within us. So there's a, back to the trilogy, I believe that the soul is genderless. Mm -hmm. So a non-physical consciousness isn't, has a gender. Gender has to do with the human experience. So the the third of ourselves that's coming in with an intention isn't a man or a woman, but it's coming in to be a character. It's coming in to be a human. Yeah. So if you come into a man's body or a woman's body, physical body, there's a certain physicality that has a, that has embodies a masculine or feminine. That from, has some expression. Yeah, through yeah. hormones, through anatomy, right. right? I'm in a man's body. Mm-hmm. So my character is in a man's body. There's the mind the expression of the mind that 
can be aligned with that, or as we're finding, could be in a man's body, but have the psyche of a, of a woman mm-hmm. or vice versa. Right. And so the acknowledgement of these two pieces of what is the psyche, what's the mind's perspective of being a masculine or feminine. And I think, and how it interfaces with the body's propensity to embody one quality over the other. Yeah. And how the collection of that is shaped by these archetypes, the king and the queen, the, the, the warrior, the magician and the lover, as just a way to talk about the archetypes and how the fundamental aspect of acknowledging that both of these qualities are within us is really important because it allows me to access an aspect of the harmonization within me of intuition and action and, and, and these other qualities actually, before you came over, I was jotting some things down as a, as a balancing point. So, um, this idea of creativity and analysis, mm-hmm. the balance between art and math, emotions and wisdom, imagination and practicality. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a whole harmonization that happens. And it's not, it's not gender specific because it's within us. And so intuition and focus, passion and determination, nurturing in the rational, contemplation and logic, Mm. right? There are these ideas of the circular and the linear. And I think that there's a general notion of creativity, the the life-forming aspect within the physicality of life is the ultimate creative act. And it comes through the, it comes through the feminine, the creativity and the masculine in my perspective help steward the conditions for creativity to thrive. So from a practical day to day, it would be the masculine, the men create the conditions of safety for creativity to happen. So it keeps women and children safe mm-hmm. and, and is able to do that with each person is able to participate in that harmonization based on part of what their character, what our character roles are. So there's a part of that that I'm stewarding as a man to support that, but I'm also a creative, intuitive. Those are playing out within me in terms of intention requiring attention. Yeah. And intuition requiring initiative mm-hmm. and wisdom requiring application. So there's a it's a it's a it's the harmonization that happens within ourselves and within our society that to me starts to define my own inquiry around what does it mean to be a man because mm. it, to answer that is predicated on my beliefs of who I think I am mm-hmm. my beliefs of what I think make an, a human and these beliefs about what does it mean to harmonize and to identify with words these different frequencies that 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 we just, that I just listed and exploring and identifying some of these things, I'm, I embody more than others. Right. And so, and yet there's a, there's an inherent harmonization within me as being complete within myself. So there's not a need to project that out into the world. Jung talks about this projection of our feminine side into the world 
in a codependent kind of way. So as a man, I would project my anima into the world in terms of looking for a partner and looking for something to complete me, find my better half are these notions that are so codependent, so, so codependent and yeah. so <laughs> accepted as a good thing. Sure. Right. Hey, Chase, I just found my better half. Oh, you lucky guy. This, right. This or, I, and there's this antiquated idea, right? That, that white men a hundred years ago needed to find their muse. And so they, you know, yeah. go from woman to woman until the inspiration ran out. Yeah. And this is a good example of, you know, if you cultivate that feminine as a man, that feminine within you, you're cultivating that creative side. You're cultivating your own muse. You're yeah. becoming your own muse in a sense, or connecting with that instead of needing that externally and having some hole that exists in you. And I think... I don't know where it came from and maybe it's not even important, but we've gotten away from understanding feminine and masculine as aspects of energetic archetypes. And somehow those got prescribed as cultural roles or someone with the anatomy of a man or someone with yeah. the anatomy of a, of a woman. Um, and instead what you're saying is beautiful is, okay, here are the list of, of, characteristics that we consider feminine or masculine. And it's my own job. It's my own for, for the well-being of my own heart, really, yeah. to, to look at this list and to see what I'm more of. Am I more of this with total acceptance for knowing that aspects of both that you're on a spectrum with every one of those, the analytic and the yeah. and the contemplative and the creative. And, and the society will have that kind of balance. It's not that everyone has a perfect balance of those things. Like some people's character is to be logical and to implement the plan. And other people's roles is to come up with the plan. And we might call them visionaries or artists sure. or something. And so, you know, within an organization or a company, you'll have this wonderful compilation of these different qualities that each person embodies. So it's in that merging, but from the premise that each person is whole. Mm. And that is a, that I think is a, it's the, it's the, it's the embodiment of synergy for me. And that as, as, as men and women, or as we're looking for certain fulfillment in our lives, I think the old story is one half plus one half equals one. Mm -hmm. And that's found in that looking for our better half kind of thing. It's implied that if you find your better half, that's great, but don't, don't separate because then you're back to a half again. Right. Right. But the new human story I think is one plus one equals three. It's the sacred third that gets created in the, in the creativeness that, two holes can come together to create something. And that notion is empowering and it's liberating and it's based on the premise that we are inherently whole and divine and enough within ourselves, which could mean I may be a little more logical and I want to create things with someone that's a good complement to that, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean I don't have intuition or nurturing within me. It just means that there could be a balancing but it's not predicated on someone not being enough or only being masculine. Yeah. Um, and so the combination of redefining and re-understanding what is the differenti differentiation between being 
masculine and feminine. And against the backdrop of an old story that defined masculine as being superior, mm -hmm. right? That's the essence of patriarchy, which does a disservice both to men and women. Mm. It's not a, it's the patriarchy is an expression of a immature masculine. Right. Not, yeah. we don't need, and that runs the risk. And I feel this at play now. And why your question is so important, because I think there's a, there's a tendency to want to define what it means to be masculine as being aggressive uh, and abusive of some sort. And we see that in a lot of the movements coming out, whether it's in a lot of our male leaders or in this, this coming to terms with the Me Too movement. And so the backlash against the immature masculine runs the risk of being a backlash against the masculine and not defining. And I mean, it's so, in a way, it's, it's so beautifully played out in the display of what the patriarchy in our government is treating women and children that are fleeing for their lives coming into this country. Yeah. The conspicuousness of not making women and children feel safe as a gesture of supporting the creativeness of life mm -hmm. is so apparent in what we're seeing, not as a judgment of any people living now, but more as an expression of the core beliefs about what it means to be masculine and what it means to serve the life-giving nature of the feminine. Um, how do we do that in our lives as individuals? How do we do that within ourselves? How do we do it within our lives? How do we do it as a culture? How do we do it as a nation? And so as we see these displays, whether it's what's happening at our borders or just the acknowledgement of the Me Too movement mm -hmm. feels like, feels to me like an expression of the core beliefs that are giving rise to that, which invite us back into this conversation around who do we think we are? What does it mean to be masculine? What does it mean to be an individual? What does it mean to potentially harmonize that within ourselves? Yeah. Um, and the whole mystery of that, because... There's no, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, we're all the, we're all in the midst of it. We're all in the midst of the experiment of the discovery yeah. of these answers, you know, and to, to presume that, you know, the truth is, is preventative towards realizing it or embodying it more day by day. Right. Yeah. And, um, I loved what you said about what we're seeing out there being an expression what what's being referred to as the patriarchy as an expression of immature masculinity, because really there the archetype of the bully of using anger to oppress someone else is an immature masculine archetype. And, and whether you're a woman or a man, you know, don't confuse that as being masculine or working on your masculinity by, by taking on that role. Yeah. You know, it's, or don't, you know, yeah, we run that risk of saying that that is masculinity or defining masculinity that way. And it's not. And it makes sense that we would do that because we've been swimming in the water of the patriarchy for 
thousands of years. Sure, sure. So, so the pendulum swings. Yeah, and the pendulum has been swinging all over the place trying to find balance. Right. And, you know, another place I, I, I think really points to this as an expression of the core beliefs, which is how does our modern society regard the women's menstrual cycle? It's like, if we want to understand this whole Me Too movement, the whole conversation about our society, I feel is completely, it, it's totally embodied in how we regard the most sacred thing in our civilization that's given rise to life on this planet is, uh, is held in such a low frequency. Yeah. And it's an, it, it embodies all of these core beliefs that we're talking about. Yeah. And so I like to find examples like that because a lot of this is pretty philosophical, mm -hmm. right? We're talking about beliefs. We're talking about concepts. We're talking about balancing uh, receptivity and action, right? These things uh -huh. that, that make sense to me. And we can point to things in our society or breastfeeding or different things to or death. What are all the things yeah. that we, we try to put in a dark corner, you know, or brush under the bed or the rug or, or we, ha yeah. Or, how do we regard it as being as, or do we celebrate it? Yeah. Right. Like, right. So uh, when I think of the future human, mm -hmm. the menstrual cycle is so celebrated right? for what it, for what it is. Right. right. And so by everyone, by everyone. Yeah. It's one of the most celebrated acts as the, as the essence of, of the origins of life, right? That's right. how it happens is this. Mm -hmm. So if we're not, so then the question is, okay, the, the contemplation around why is it regarded that way? What yeah. are the beliefs about it? And that, that contemplation leads us, I think, to considering what would the beliefs, how could the beliefs be different and how would that be expressed in our society, mm -hmm. right? Like what would that look like in society if we completely celebrated that, like off the charts, you know? Right. And to me, that would, that contemplating that gives us an idea, I think, of how the masculine and the feminine, what it would be to be a man or a woman in society, vis-a-vis -vis how would we regard talking about that or regarding that or seeing someone, a woman wearing a pin that indicates that she's on her moon, how would we mm -hmm. celebrate that or regard her or support her or, you know, do just recognize, yeah. oh my gosh, you know, you're, you're embodying the essence of life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to look at her with wonder and revelry, yeah. you know, in, in the glory of life continuing. Yeah. <laughs> and as a man, as, you know, as a character, as a Robert, who's a man, I can only regard that from this masculine perspective because I've not had that experience. Mm. So that also starts to touch in on what does it mean to be a man relative to some of these topics? Because I may have a harmonized anima animus within me or aspire to that or be working on that. And as a male character, I will have a, an experience 
on a topic like the menstrual cycle as someone who doesn't experience that. We'll never experience it. We'll never experience it. So I now have a, how do I support that? How do I create the conditions that honor that and celebrate that as the essence of creativity? And that feels like a great distinction of what are the, what are some of the roles in the display of being this question of what does it mean to be a man? Because yes, it's harmonizing me. I won't give, I won't give birth. I don't have that process within me. And so just by the sake of being a male character there, it feels to me like there are these qualities that are part of my cosmic improv play to navigate in the world as being a man and responding to these kinds of issues in a world where there are women and children and how do i how do i show up in the world in my own modern version of a samurai knight of templar kind of thing mm-hmm. if i'm wanting to create the conditions of safety and nurture create the conditions of nurturing creativity in the form of 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 the feminine that's embodied in these other aspects. What does that look like for me? What does that look like? Well, who is Robert as the benevolent king? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I think that's a beautiful place to to wrap things up, to sort of give leave people as a contemplation yeah, for beautiful. their own life. Um, and one last question for you. I like to ask at the end of each of these, what's one exercise or challenge that you'd give someone to um to go home with to spend the next week thinking about or doing writing in their journal i invite i'd invite them to write about their beliefs <laughs> Anwa thinks so too yeah dogs on board for that um I think this this the self contemplation around what are the beliefs that they have now and what are the beliefs that they had then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you heard it, folks. We're gonna end it there. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, it's been awesome to talk with you. Oh, what a wild ride that was, barking dogs and all. Robert's invitation for us is to sit down and to write about our beliefs. Take some time yourself to contemplate how your beliefs have changed over time, what they were before and what they are now. And perhaps there's an opportunity to understand what maybe you want them to be in the future. Thanks so much to Robert. Thanks to Audi Chino for the music. Thanks to No Sin Records for the production. Thank you for listening. Now get out there and ask someone you love for a hug. A la próxima. Ciao.